You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode 19, recorded in January 2012. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And I'm Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, we are back for our very first episode of 2012 and our continued conversation on how to support the conversation on ending human trafficking. And it's great to be back with you for our ongoing efforts to bring more uh, light to this issue. I'm really excited to be back. The Global Center for Women and Justice is off to a big start in 2012. Uh, One of the new features is we have a direct dial number that you can call and leave your questions and engage with us. That number is 714-966-6361. And of course, if you want to use email, you can always go to gcwj at vanguard.edu. With the new year comes all kinds of new resources. And Sandy, before we jump in and welcome our guests today, because we do have a couple of guests that are going to be joining us. I'm excited about that. Me too. Uh, I know you wanted to mention something about the conference, which is coming up in just a couple of short months. We've been talking about it uh, the last few months, but now it's really on the uh, real close to happening. Oh, yes. And our conference, Ensure Justice 2012, is called Standing Together to End the Exploitation of Girls. That's why I'm so excited to have our guest today. But if you're going to register for that, you want to get online at gcwj.vanguard.edu so you get the early bird rates. The conference is March 2nd and 3rd. Our guest speakers include Judge William Boy, who is a leading voice in the juvenile court system because of his proximity there to the issue in Las Vegas. And he brings uh, a voice of experience and passion and a compelling message for community engagement. We also have wonderful professionals in nursing, in um, children's residential facilities, probation officers, the um, district attorney's office in Las Vegas and locally here. It is going to be a conference you do not want to miss because we are going to work on strategies to end the exploitation of girls. So go online. You can go to insurejustice.com or to gcwj.vanguard.edu to register. And that takes us right to our guests today, Sandy, and learning more about, um, you know, one of the big mantras of the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University is to study the the issues so we can be a voice and make a difference. And today, and part of our podcast always is studying the issues of human trafficking. And our guests today are going to help us to do that and really help us to learn more from uh, experience and how we can study this issue to really be Uh, proactive voices in ending human trafficking. Thank you, Dave. I am very excited to introduce our guest today. Carissa Phelps brings the experience and the expertise into this issue that is difficult to find anywhere else. And her colleague, Mariana um, Smirnova, I'm so sorry, Mariana, I was not going to do this. Mariana Smirnova, 
has been her policy consultant on human trafficking. And so together, the experience and the expertise will bring a lot of light to this issue. And we're just going to get started right away. Um, Carissa, would you tell us about the organization that you've started? Sure. The organization is NAIOC. It's National Alliance to Improve Outcomes for CSEC. And most of your listeners, if they're up to this podcast know that CSEC is uh, commercial sexual exploitation of children. And the organization is just doing exactly what the name says. We're just focused on outcomes, improving those outcomes for this population of CSEC. Um, I do believe that all forms of human trafficking will be addressed in our strategy <clears throat> because we know that exploited people exploit. Um, however, we're, we're taking a focus on um, on measuring and, and taking a look at outcomes and things that we could do by engaging the population of C-sex survivors to improve outcomes for them. Wow. Okay. Just in your statement, I'm, I want to go and go back to exploited um, people exploit, become exploiters. Can you explain what you meant by saying that? Sure. I'm, I mean, we're all familiar with the concept, I think, of, you know, of people that are abused um, may or may not become abusers, but that sometimes there's a tendency for people to carry on um, the acts that have been done to them or to think that it's okay to somehow normalize that activity. And so, you know, my experience <coughs> in, in being a trafficking victim and a trafficking survivor was that I saw many of the people that abused and exploited me were also abused and exploited themselves in different realms, maybe but they were also abused and exploited, whether that was in labor or some other area. Um, that's, that's what I viewed both as a survivor and now working in this field. That's really important insight that we will all need to explore and understand better. Now, uh, you've already identified for our listeners that you are a survivor, but that means then that you were a victim. And I'm very excited to be one of the first to tell people that your book is coming out really soon, Runaway Girl. When is that going to be available? July 9th. Um, <clears throat> and it is soon, July 9th, when I look at all the time it took to write the book. So yes, July 9th, 2012. Now, I don't want a spoiler, but um, can you tell us a little bit of what, about what the story is in this book, Runaway Girl? Well, I mean, I, I, I really wanted to write a book that was honest and open and true to the struggle I think that we all go through in our human experience of trying to figure out the world. And my circumstances happened to be that I was in a mixed family. I had a stepfather. I had some stepbrothers and sisters. And, and we were a very large family of 11. And <clears throat> attention was an issue in my family, but also abuse. And I show a picture of that in the beginning. But I'm not pointing fingers or judging or holding grudges in the book, and I think that that's really important process of where I am in my life, that um, I've been able to forgive and move on. And I tell the story. I, I tell the story of you know running away from home because I didn't feel like I had a place there anymore. And then ultimately being abandoned at the age of 12, um, given up on, and trying to find my way to survive 
and being exploited, again, by people I think that in society had already been exploited in various ways. Um, some of them um, trafficked themselves as children and then becoming traffickers. So I lived through that at 12 years old, and I came out with a very strong belief that the reason I was there was to carry a message of hope forward for all the people that are trapped there and that need a way out. And I kind of have used my ability to <clears throat> do well in school on standardized tests to um, go forward majoring in math at Fresno State and then going on, graduating summa and going on to um, law school at UCLA to pursue some sort of form of justice for, you know, not only my what I had gone through, but what people were continually going through in this cycle um, that that maybe I could raise some awareness, but then also do something about the issue. And I added the MBA to my program um, because I really felt that I needed to understand the where how decisions were being made in my in communities and in businesses, and why people were exploited on some of the higher levels um, in society. So, you know, it all came together, and um, and I'm here today, and. And the story is just about that, that, that whole coming-of-age process. And I think a lot of people will identify, even if they haven't been abused or exploited, with some of the processes that um, I went through. Well, you used two words that really capture my attention. You were trapped, and then you talk about the cycle. Now, a lot of people that I've met and I've heard their stories, um, that concept of being trapped is something that the average listener doesn't understand because the average listener um, thinks that you were locked in a room and tied um, up or, or handcuffed or something. Would you describe what were the factors that trapped you? Well, I mean, as a, as a 12-year-old, those things did happen to me. I, I was physically at times trapped with you know, people having weapons against me. But then there were times where I could have walked out of the door. The door was not locked. But I was trapped by um, fear, really, paralysis of, you know, I think what we, what we may have learned in our general psychology course or maybe more advanced is that we have this fight or flight mode when we are attacked. But we also have a freeze mode as well. And I think children, um, especially because they don't have a great big bag of resources to pull from or experience often freeze. They freeze and they just are, are told what to do and they respond um, to whatever adult is there telling them what to do. And so when there are people that are exploiting or taking advantage of them, they're very vulnerable. Um, and then we trap them sometimes in society by saying things like, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you get help? Why did you do this? And really putting a lot of blame and shame onto them when they, in fact, did not make a decision to be there in the first place, but they froze out of um, a necessity to survive. So that sense of being trapped and then caught in that cycle, um, it seems that what Mariana, what you bring to the table is the the legislation that is designed to interrupt that cycle. And what are some of the most promising um, policy directions that are out there right now 
uh, to help interrupt that cycle. Thanks. And I think policy is just one way um, to deal with and address human trafficking. And, you know, policy is a very intricate process. Sometimes you enact a policy, but then it's not fully implemented. So it's really important to see the whole process through. But some of the things that we're looking at is um, sort of statewide and national policy developments, but also sometimes it comes down to organizational policies and changing policies within systems. So for example, if you speak of being trapped in that cycle, a lot of times, especially when we um, see children, but also adults as well, is that they are criminalized. The victims and survivors themselves are seen and treated by systems as criminals. Um, whether it's um, the child, the juvenile system, right, um, the juvenile criminal system, or it's the DCFS, or it's, you know, the immigration enforcement for adults, or it's the criminal system for adults. A lot of times it sees victims as perpetrators, and that's what we're trying to change within, um, within the system, so working with DCFS, working with probation. Um, and changing those mindsets. But more broadly, uh, for example, on state level, right now there's actually a very interesting trend that um, has happened in several different states, which is um, expunging or vacating convictions for survivors of trafficking. So as I've mentioned, again, a lot of times the system doesn't respond properly, and instead of criminalizing and holding perpetrators accountable, it criminalizes the victim. So what we're trying to do is actually if when that has happened and then survivors go on carrying these convictions on their record or they have, you know, juvenile record, it's really hard that it basically creates almost impossible barriers to reintegrate into society and lead a normal life because there are barriers in um, getting an education, there are barriers in, you know, getting housing, there are barriers in getting jobs. So what a lot of states have done already, states like Illinois and New York and Maryland and Nevada have passed vacating convictions laws that would help um, vacate the criminal record for survivors of trafficking if they were convicted of any um, criminal activities that were a direct result of um, their victimization. And now in California, and actually in my uh, former host home state of Wisconsin, simultaneously we are looking at the same legislation as well, looking to pass it. So I think that's a ray of hope for survivors that they're going to be able to use this tool um, to help them again, get support, the needed support and break that cycle um, and have really the ability to go forward with their lives and succeed. And there, the other um, thing that I wanted to mention is national, and that's the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So there's this federal legislation that was passed in 2000 and actually gets reauthorized every two years. And it's very important. And this year is the reauthorization year. And we're looking for everyone's support to make sure that um, the bill is passed and it's reauthorized so we can go on um, 
really supporting the victims, um, helping break that cycle, and leading, you know, supporting them in survivorship and also holding perpetrators accountable. Wow. So breaking the cycle, that legislation sounds amazing because it's like taking um, weights off of your ankles when you're trying to run away from something and then you can't get away. So expunging records, that's that's very um, exciting. And it kind of leads into, okay, so you take off the the excess baggage that is um, um, holding a girl back. And now then the, the next phase is is helping her move forward, that sense of empowerment. And I, I loved um, reading about your organization, Carissa, and knowing that there is such a focus on outcomes and results and believing, I think I'm quoting, we believe in strong, empowered voices. So how are you how are you doing in that? Can you give us some examples of where you're seeing those kind of results, Carissa? Well, I think one of the important things that um, everyone that's working on this issue can understand and learn from a survivor is that sometimes just being at the table in these conversations is is a is 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 a way to empower. We often, we invite survivors into conferences or into the classrooms and we say, tell your story. Um, and, you know, they could easily feel like um, they're being exploited again. It's being a form of, you know, um, of, of a entertainment or, or not even that, but, you know, shock value or something like that to get people to donate or to act or to do something instead of really engaging them and bringing them to the table and hearing their voice and hearing their story and picking up, you know, picking up on, on the things that really need to be done because they've lived it. And I knew coming into this issue that I was 20 years apart from the streets where I was forced into prostitution and where this happened. I knew I had to talk to survivors that were there on the streets now. And I know it because I, I know I don't know what's going on right now. I know they do. So really engaging them, and I think um, some, of, some movements in foster care have done this really well in engaging and empowering and creating organizations that are um, empowerment-centered, that they not only empower those people that are survivors, but they empower their organizations and people that work with their organizations, and they have an intention, and I think Mariana has really driven this in NAIOC, is that there's an intention there of, um, of having survivors at the table in what we do and 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 that doesn't just include the person who has been exploited but their families as well their families are a key component to um to having us grow and understand this issue more so um the link with foster care can you explain what you're talking about there so we have a better understanding well sure i mean foster care um, there's been a movement to bring former foster youth and current foster youth to the table to say, you know, what, what can we do better in, in this? We know we've, we've, we've got some things wrong. We're not having good outcomes, basically. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm part of several, you know, movements, organizations, that, and, and the organizations I work with bring foster care to the foster youth to the table. A lot of times the most um, exploited, those young women who have been trafficked, 
aren't at the table necessarily to begin with, but it's my job to help bring them into those forums that um, where their voice can be heard. So, you know, foster youth are targeted um, and exploited because they do not have families there to protect them, and we know that. Um, so we know there's a bit, there's a correlation. You know, foster youth being exploited, and we and we want to get DCFS involved and empower this group and this um, these young women, not just look at them like, oh, they're prostitutes or they're hookers or look at them on the streets, what they're doing, or they want this life and, and they want money or they, they, you know, and these are judgments that you'll see institutions making and another form of trapping this young girl into that lifestyle is, you know, it separates them. Instead of saying, you know, please come to the table. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear what's going on with you and what your needs are. Um, oftentimes, it's just judgment and and go away and and it's all your fault. Basically, a lot of shame and blame. Mm, I've heard you say shame and blame a couple of times now. Um, this idea of looking back at foster care um, seems to mean that we're going back and finding out how to stop this before it happens, not how to find and rescue, which that has to be one one pillar of what we're doing, but actually doing prevention. And the foster care system seems to be one place where we can clearly identify some huge gaps. I was very encouraged when the White House announced that this year, January's focus for Human Trafficking Month is prevention. So instead of national human trafficking awareness, we're talking about national human trafficking prevention. So the um, the voices in the foster care reform movement are I, identifying the links to human trafficking. Every time I talk to someone or read another blog, there is this idea that if these kids had the safety net of a family, everything for their future would change. The cycle would be broken. I was at a discussion table Um, last year and heard a new word for me it was and I'm going to try and say it very slowly familylessness familylessness and when you first started talking Carissa and, and talking about not feeling like you had a place in your own home that sense of being abandoned and having no one to turn to that creates one of the Um, key ingredients that promotes human trafficking, the sense of never having an option, having no place to turn. And then when someone offers you just a glimmer of hope based on a false, fraudulent dream, then you're very possibly um, vulnerable to accepting that and making a decision that changes the course of your life. I, I absolutely agree, and I would I would extend it even further to communitylessness <laughs> that we you know we're, we're not only family we're without family but we're oftentimes without community because because we're forced not to go to school and um, and basically if we go to school then we're turned into police or probation so we have we you know parts of our community our friends their friends the friends and and their families who may have supported us are no longer there because, you know, we've lost our community as well when we're taken into a system 
that um, that ignores that we're ever part of a community. I love it that you brought up community. That's kind of the direction I'm going to. We hosted in Van- at Vanguard in October um, a regional summit on human trafficking of exploited minors. And we had Judge Voy from Las Vegas and Judge Doug Hajimonji here in Orange County. We had prosecutors and public defenders and victim service representatives. And we identified some of the professional gaps and we're working on those. But one of the key findings of that summit, it was a two-day brainstorming discussion, was the gap in community engagement And we are done with community awareness. We really need to move to community engagement. And my our next podcast after this one is really going to look at how do we begin to set community engagement in motion. And our conference that's coming up in March is about engaging the community to stand together. And this idea that there are children who do not have a sense of community. They don't have someone to turn to and that we could, as a community, do something in our own backyard to end human trafficking. And it, that's right. Community is, is central to this, and I think that's, you know, my focus has always been community um, development, community economic development in a lot of ways, and creating opportunities for people to engage around, around you know, marketplaces and around um, schools and and giving incentives to do that by um, building stronger communities that give back and recycle love, hope, inspiration, and even dollars within their own community. So I think I think it's really important for people to understand community engagement beyond um, some of the um, the warmth and um, the 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 sense of, of belonging. But the option to be a part of the working um, mechanisms in a community that are in the marketplace, that means it's economic. And you mentioned dollars and you talked about incentives. Can you, we've just got a couple of minutes to wrap up. Can you give me um, an understanding of what are the economic incentives that kids need when they don't have resources? Because just telling them, we believe in you and we, we want you to be part of our community. Those, to me, seem like rather empty promises. Sure, yeah. No, they need, just like any of us, to see people close to them in their lives have jobs, have have complete whole communities that care about the adults in their lives. They know that they're going to be an adult someday. It's there in their conscious mind or subconscious mind. And they see the way that we treat other people inside of their own community. They know that they will be, par- be a part of that community when they grow as into adults. And so if their community, if we have abandoned entire communities, which we've done in the United States, and especially in my home area of Fresno, California, where we have these pockets of poverty where exploitation just feeds on, um, on, on people being without community, without family, and without resources, then um, we're just going to perpetuate this and, and we won't get people, we won't be able to convince anyone to work harder to be another exploited person. So we have to bring those opportunities in and really inject opportunities into communities and have them, um, you know, with our dollars, with our dollars, where however we get those, invest into 
communities. And that's what I try to convince people of um, on a daily basis is that this is an investment and it will pay back um, so much, in, so much more than, than we can just by um, handing out dollars if we invest into communities and create opportunities. So community and development. So, community yes, development. I, community um, development. I, I was asked a couple of years ago to write something on prevention. So write curriculum so that I could go to the Carissa Phelps that are 12 years old and say, these are the signs of a perpetrator that's going to exploit you. So don't do this and don't do that. Well, what I learned is that there isn't any way to create that kind of prevention Module. It might affect a few, but mostly um, kids who don't have options are going to t- make decisions that they feel are their only choices because their brains aren't done. They don't have the capacity to think beyond um, those, those strategies. So real prevention for me is if I see a community where there's a single mom with a 10 or 11-year-old daughter and she's unemployed, prevention is getting her a job. Yes. Yes. So. Yes, and an opportunity to engage in the community, and and maybe it's not a job because you know a lot of the young women that I work with are becoming moms now, and they're not ready. They ha- they're suffering from PTSD. They're suffering from you know past e- life events that haven't even begun to be addressed yet. And so we have to really think about the health of each of those people in the community as well, and be committed to their success, and not just say go get a job so you could look productive. But, you know, we really want you to be productive and feel rewarded in what you do. And and that means let's address some of your issues um, ahead of time and get you engaged in this community movement. You'll find uh, that there's a lot of generational exploitation and that we can engage parents and empower them and at the same time engage survivors because they're one and the same. So as we wind up, tell me one nugget of um, joyful outcomes. I know you have... Um, a story about one of your mentees? Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I, I've, I have 12 young women that I mentor, and some of them are in contact with me regularly, and most of them are not. They, um, they'll come in and out of my life, but they know that I, they have a sense of permanency in my life, which I think is important when we mentor, is to give people the chance to always, you know, they know what phone number to call or how to reach me when they need uh, help, and that could be, um, a room for the night, uh, help connecting them to resources, or applying to college, which is always great. It's like, can I help you apply to college and get you, um, you know, get you thinking about other options? And so I do have a young woman that I mentor who's going to be graduating from USC um, this year, and it's pretty exciting. Wow. It's really, really, really exciting, and it gives me kind of chills right now to think about it because. She's come a very long way, and um, and I know she's going to give back in major ways. Wow. Thank you. And Mariana, do you have a final word? We're going to have you back and just focus on your expertise with legislation, but you have one final word before we sign off? Oh, yeah, thanks for having me on, and I look forward to talking to you more. But, yeah, I do want to stress, I think, the um, issue of prevention is uh, very, very key. That's, you know, out of the three pillars that we often talk about, the prosecution, protection, and prevention, prevention always somehow gets left out. And so um, actually this month on January 1st, I want to note that there is a law that just came into effect, the Transparency in Supply Chains Act. This is a unique law that is first in the nation that was passed in California. 
and it's going to focus on you know really primary prevention of exploitation on the labor side and why we focused a lot today talking about minor sex trafficking what we see you know not just internationally and not only with foreign victims that are exploited in the United States but with domestic uh, victims as well that there's a lot of um, really conflation of the two crimes and we see minors and sex trafficking that are also exploited in labor so this act hopefully would encourage companies to clean up their act and to look at their supply chains and where they're getting their labor whether it's you know in Thailand or um, in China or India or Africa or it's in East LA yeah yeah oh thank you so much and actually for our listeners if you want a little more on that we actually did podcast 17 too because we're so excited about that new law go back and listen to that I want to thank our guests for their time and their expertise come back come to the conference uh, go to gcwj.vanguard.edu to register now uh, call 714-966-61 no 6361 I have to learn my new phone <laughs> you number do have to learn your Dave new number. <laughs> tell us the number to call and leave your questions Yeah and actually before we let Carissa go uh, Carissa you know we're recording this January 2012 but inevitably people will pick up this episode once your book is out Do you know yet how people will be able to get your book will it be available on Amazon or any other uh, website for folks to uh, look into it Yes definitely so it's being published by Viking big publishing house and it's going to be available at every major bookstore um, Amazon ask for your bookstores to carry it if they don't and it should be there and um, and I'm super excited about it again it's it's going to be a great um, opportunity and I would love to come back on the show again whenever it comes out well and you know what I want to do Carissa I want to do pre-sales at our March conference can we do that I think we can. I think okay. They, <laughs> I will be. put you in touch with the right people to do that. Okay. I think that would be really great for the, our attendees to get it first. So thank you. And that's going to conclude our time today. Sandy, thank you so much for uh, bringing another of uh, several more experts to this conversation and helping us to study the issues. And just a reminder, the conference upcoming in March, go to gcwj at vanguard.edu. And of course, you can reach us anytime with questions or comments about this podcast, 714-966-6361. And thank you again to both of our guests today, Sandy. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you, Carissa. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks.